It's good to see all of you here today. Why don't we bow our heads and go to God in prayer as we ask Him to prepare our hearts to listen to His Word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we study more of Saul and David, that you will show us who you really are and what your plans are for this world and how we can truly rely on you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, sovereignty. Sovereignty is a very uh, big word, isn't it? Uh, it's a very cheap word, very complicated word, but it's a word that we often use to describe God. God is sovereign. We sing songs about God's sovereignty. We read books about God's sovereignty. But what does it really mean that God is a sovereign God? What does it mean about God's sovereignty? Does it, mean, does it make any difference to us that He is a sovereign God and that He has sovereignty over the whole world? Well, today as we look at uh, these two long passages, in chapter 18 and 19, I hope that we will see a bit more about God's sovereignty. Okay? Now, as we uh, begin today's passage, uh, we're not going to look at all of it, obviously, because, you know, it will take forever. But uh, uh, we're going to start first in verse 6, because I think verse 6 basically explains to us in a nutshell what is happening across the whole two chapters. Okay, so let's look at verse 6 together. So in verse 6 it says, When the men were returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with trembles and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, it's only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, as uh, we've seen from last week, last week was that very famous story of David and Goliath. And uh, as we saw last week, at the end of that victory, when David defeated Goliath, if you have a look at the slide here, right? Remember, oh, it's a bit smaller here. Okay, doesn't matter. Um, remember that when they had that great victory around here in Sukkoth? The, the Philistine army was beaten all the way back into Philistine territory, back to, to their major cities of Ekron and Gath. So as a result of that battle, uh, there was great joy, there was great celebration in the whole of Israel. And uh, you can just imagine, like, you know, after World War II, uh, you know, there was, uh, the Philistines had been pressing down on the Israelites for a very long time. Remember how uh, they, they, they were really hard-pressed. And now, finally, they were free of this oppression from the Philistines. So just think about like in World War II, okay, next slide, right, how, you know, after the victory, people are celebrating, they're spilling onto the road, people like celebrating, uh, of course, there's that famous picture of two people kissing, well, since this is church, I wouldn't put it up here, but uh, the next slide, right, so then there are people, you know, celebrating, playing music, and this is exactly what the, the celebration mood was in Israel. Everybody was really happy. But except, as we read in this passage, there was one person who was not happy at all. And that was King Saul, isn't it? Because as you look there in verse 6, everybody came out to meet who? What did the passage say? They came out to meet King Saul, isn't it? But when they met King Saul and his army, they were singing that Saul had slain thousands, but David had slain tens of thousands. So Saul was not happy. He was a jealous 
king, isn't it? He was filled with anger. In fact, it says that in verse 7, it displeased him greatly. Now, as we've seen over the last few uh, weeks, we've been looking at 1 Samuel. Saul was quite a complex character, isn't it? And, and actually, he had quite uh, anti-social characteristics. I suppose if he was in school today, some of the school teachers in our midst would write down in his report card to his parents that Saul does not share well with others, right? He does not play well with others. And one of the problems was, Saul cannot stand other people stealing his glory. He always wants to be in the spotlight. So, remember in chapter 13 and chapter 14, we saw the same thing. So, next slide. Right, so, remember in chapter 13, his son, Jonathan, was the one who had attacked and taken out the Philistine outpost. But, in verse 4, all Israel heard the news that it was Saul who had attacked the Philistine outpost. In chapter 14, remember, we saw that it was God who was working through again through his son Jonathan who uh, really started that victory over the Philistine army. And again, in chapter 14, verse 24, Saul says, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So Saul here does not like to share the spotlight. He does not like to share the limelight. It's all about I, right? It's all about me. There is nobody else in the spotlight. And Saul being the king, I guess, could have done various things, right? Uh, I remember reading this book recently about tricky people, about how they operate in the workplace. I guess some things that Saul could have done was, you know, they could, he could have downplayed uh, David's glory. Maybe he could have said, oh, you know, David has the muscle, but I got the brains, right? I'm the one leading the people here. He didn't do that. He could have created some gossip about King, about David, right? He could have said, oh, you know, Goliath, he wasn't really feeling really well that day, you know, he was down on the flu, and the stone really didn't hit him in the forehead, it sort of glanced him, and you know, he fainted. Or maybe he could have undermined David and said, oh, you know, David is actually some sort of Philistine spy. Or being king, he could have sidelined David and made him ambassador to Egypt. But Saul was not one of those tricky people. Instead, as we look, his jealousy revealed himself in the desire to kill and murder David. So in verse 10, we see the first attempt on David's life. So in verse 10, it says, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. Now, as we saw in uh, chapter 16, when uh, God acted to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to David, what happened? Well, we saw primarily that the Holy Spirit came on David, but as it came on David, the Holy Spirit left King Saul. Remember chapter 16, we did that a few weeks ago. But as the Holy Spirit left King Saul, a harmful or injurious or evil spirit came to King Saul. And we're not sure exactly what that evil spirit did, but whatever it did, it was physically manifested because the people who were around King Saul could see when this evil spirit was in him. Maybe he got a headache, maybe he was moody, maybe he was depressed. But the only cure for his, uh, his ailment, which was caused by the evil spirit, was 
was David playing the liar, isn't it? Okay, so remember, uh, next slide. So th- I took this from the Lions Bible Dictionary or something. So this is a model which you can find in Israel or something, which is somewhat of what David was playing. And remember in, in chapter 16, verse 23, it said, whenever the Spirit of God, from God, came upon Saul, which made Saul feel bad, David would take his harp and play. And relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. So here, as we remember back in chapter 16, whenever David played, he would be like Kenny G, right, to Saul, and Saul would feel better. But I think as we read chapter 16, it was more than the fact that he was just like Kenny G or something. It was more that he also had the Holy Spirit in him, isn't it? So his playing somehow relieved the evil spirit that King Saul felt. And here again in verse 10, same thing happens. The very next day after the celebration, this evil spirit comes from God to Saul. He feels bad. But here we see that he's doing something. He's prophesying. Now, now in, in the New Testament, I guess in modern Christian thinking, prophesying is a, has a very narrow definition. We think of it as terms of God speaking through us to speak to other people about you know, his plan or his good news. But technically, the word prophesying literally means that you are speaking or talking under some sort of outside power or outside influence. So actually, I think there's some other translations which say that uh, Saul wasn't prophesying, but he was raving or mumbling or muttering or gabbering, right? So he was under this influence of an evil spirit and he he was talking through that influence. And as usual, David was there playing the harp. And uh, Saul should have been very thankful, right? Because David was like a powerful medicine to him. But while he was listening to the music, King Saul had a spear in his hand. As we will see in chapter 18 and 19, King Saul often has a spear in his hand while he's relaxing. Uh, nowadays, people have iPhones or TV remote controls while they're relaxing. But not, not, not King Saul. He always had a spear in his hand. And two times he tries to spear David to kill him. Now, why did he do this? Why did he try to kill David? Now, as we've seen over the last few weeks, this is not unexpected because Saul, as we've seen, is not a very good king. He has the personality of uh, Stalin, a personality of Pol Pot or Idi Amin. Right? He, he can't bear to let go of power. So again, in chapter 16, remember, I think slide, when God had told Samuel to anoint David to be the next king. Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and will kill me. So it's not unexpected that, that Saul wants to kill David because he feels threatened by it. And actually, this is the blueprint of the whole of chapter 18 to 19, isn't it? Because from 18 to 19, we read seven times, seven occasions where Saul tries to kill David. Uh, we're not going to go through them one after another because then it would just be repetitive. But the whole point is that he makes seven clear attempts with all the power and all the influence that he has as king. But somehow, he can't kill David. If we were to read it just by itself, it's almost like a bit of a comedy, isn't it? Okay. So if we have, if we, we're going to go through it very quickly now. So there were seven attempts 
on David. So the first one we just read here, Saul tries to spear David into the wall, okay, and David dodges his spear. In verse 17 to 19, Saul tries to trick David into marrying his daughter Mirab and forcing him to face the Philistines over and over again so that the Philistines would kill David. But David chooses not to marry Mirab. In verse 20 to 27, uh, his daughter Michelle, Michelle loves David and this time David agrees to marry Michelle. But in order to marry Michelle, he has to kill a hundred Philistines so as to cut off their foreskins to present it to Saul. But David kills 200 Philistines instead. The fourth attempt is where Saul asks his son Jonathan and his close associates to kill David. But Jonathan mediates and intervenes for David instead of killing him. In verse 8 to 10, again, Saul is sitting there with a spear in his hand. David is there playing the harp again and decides again to spear David. And again, David is pretty good at this. He dodges the spear. The sixth attempt is where Saul sends men to David's house to kill him. But this time, his daughter and David's wife, Michal, thwarts him by helping David escape. And lastly, David runs away with the prophet Samuel to Noeth and Saul sends three groups of men to kill him. And each group of men encounters Samuel and instead of killing David, they start praising God, they start singing songs of praise, they start worshipping God. Until finally, King Saul himself comes to kill David and as we read, King Saul also prophesies, also praises God, also worships God and fails to kill David. So as we look at chapter 18 to 19, there's almost a element of like comedy. You know, what's wrong with King Saul? Is he like the Mr. Bean of Israel? Right? Is he like Johnny English of Israel? Well, what is his problem, right? Well, I think within the context of 1 Samuel, the problem is God, isn't it? Because Saul is not just trying to fight against David. He's fighting against God's anointed. So when we look at those seven attempts on the life of King David, the future King David, right? In the beginning, we think, well, maybe it's just good luck that David survives. You know, he's really good at dodging spears. Or maybe it's because of Jonathan. Or maybe it's because of the love of Michal that allows him to live. But in the end, it is very clear that it is God who is protecting David. So come with me to verse 22, right? Because as we come to the very end of the chapter, uh, chapter 19, we see that it is actually God who is interceding every step of the way to protect his anointed, David. So look at me to verse 22. Finally, uh, chapter 19, verse 22, finally he, who is here Saul, King Saul himself, left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Noeth at Ramah, they said. So Saul left to Noeth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Noeth. 
He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. And this is why people say he's Saul also among the prophets. See, imagine here the picture, the visual picture of what happens. Here is King Saul with all his power, all his pomp, all his majesty and all his plans and he goes to kill a prophet and David. And he is left naked. He is humbled, he is humiliated and he is put down low by God. See, at the end of the day, we begin in chapter 18 with King Saul seeming to have all the power, but by the end of chapter 19, who has all the power? Who has all the real power? It is not the king, not the the political king of Israel, King Saul, but it is God himself, isn't it? So I think that's really the whole theme that runs through chapter 18, 19. It's not about, I guess, David dodging the spear or the love of Michal or the friendship of Jonathan, but it is God working through all these things to protect David from King Saul. And I think that as we look at this passage, really there are three things that we can actually draw from this passage and all of them have to deal with sovereignty, the power of God controlling all these circumstances. So I think the first application, as you can see in the outline, is as we look at King Saul and what he tries to do with David, The lesson is don't stand against the will of God, isn't it? Don't stand against the will of God. Now, I remember reading this book. You might ask me why I'm reading these books because they take so long. I remember reading after quite a while. And uh, don't watch the TV series because it's got lots of nudity and sex. But thankfully in Singapore, I censored. But the Game of Thrones is a very interesting book and it's it's literally about a Game of Thrones, right? Okay, so there are all these kings who are trying to occupy the throne. And that's what King Saul is naturally trying to do. Isn't he? He's playing the game of thrones. He's trying to hold on to his throne. But it is futile, isn't it, when you're playing the game of thrones, but you're playing against God. Because God had already said over the last few weeks that the throne is not for King Saul and his family to keep. See, God has said very clearly to King Saul that he was not a good king. He was not the king that God was looking for. He was unfaithful, he was disobedient, and he was spiritually blind. And in chapter 13 and chapter 14, if you look up here on the slide, sorry, chapter 15, remember what God had said to him through the prophet Samuel? In 13.13, he said, "You, You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Chapter 15 But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better to sacrifice, to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the sin, evil of idolatry. Because you rejected the word of God of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So it was very clear, absolutely crystal clear to King Saul that he was not the king that God wanted. He was, in the words of the apprentice, fired, right? Okay? Someone else was going to take his position. Basically, he was asked to pack up his cubicle and leave his keycard behind. 
Well, he refused to do that, isn't it? He didn't want to give up the position of king, even though God had said, another person is going to take over your place. And King Saul himself knew that David was actually his successor. So, turn to me back to chapter 18, right? Because gradually, it becomes clearer and clearer to Saul that actually God is with David, but no longer with him. So, look at what it says there in verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Surely that is the stupidest thing to do, isn't it? Because if you know, as Saul, that the Lord is with David, then why would you be his enemy? Why would you be an enemy against God? See, it's silly to fight against God, isn't it? It's like banging your head against the wall. If you know the plans of God, if you know the power of God, then why would you fight against God? I remember many years ago, I was counseling a man. We were having dinner somewhere. I remember it very, very clearly in my mind. This guy said to me, I know that God exists. I believe the Bible to be true. But I have my own plans for my life. Uh, and they don't include God. I think his, his words to me literally were uh, that I want to suck the juice out of life. And his plans had no place for God in it. In fact, what he wanted to do was against what God clearly said. And he knew it was against what God had clearly said in the Bible. But he thought he was smarter than God. I know that God exists, he said. I believe the Bible is true, but I have my own plans for God and God has no place in it. And in fact, my plans are against what God wants. But unfortunately, his plans didn't succeed. Now, there is stupidity in that, isn't it? Because if you believe in God, you know God, and God truly exists, and God controls all things, why would you willingly go against God and go against his plans? See, it says there very clearly in Proverbs chapter 21, right? Oh, yep. Sorry, it's, it's up there, the small verse, if you can't see it, right? It says, There is no wisdom, no insight, and no plan that can succeed against the Lord. See, that's exactly like Saul, isn't it? Saul knew what God's plan was, and knew that he wasn't going to be king anymore. He could see that David was going to be the king, but yet he fought against God's anointed and he fought against God and God's power and plan over and over and over again. Now that's really stupid. And that's something that we should learn from, isn't it? Because like this man I was talking to so many years ago, you can fight and fight and fight against God, but you can never win against God. And all the more, because even if you keep fighting at the very end because of God's power and who He is, He will judge you for rebelling against him and his rule, isn't it? So in 2 Peter, uh, chapter 3, in the last days, there'll be, there'll be scoffers, isn't it? People who will scoff at God and scoff God's plan. Scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget 
that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So you can choose to fight against God and fight and fight and fight. But you can't win in this life and you can't win in the life to come. God will judge you for fighting against Him. The second application, I think, is that the God's sovereignty, because He controls all things, is really a source of great encouragement, or should be a source of great encouragement for us, isn't it? Now, um, uh, during my date night with my wife, Cheryl, okay, so I, I try to have a date night once a week, you know, remember we did the marriage course, date nights are very important, right? Okay? So we watched this movie on Tuesday, uh, on the, called Prisoners. Okay, so if you haven't seen it, it's a very good movie. Okay, it's, 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 it, it's, it really keeps your attention all the way to the end and you can't figure out what's going to happen. But anyway, I'm going to tell you part of it so I'll help you understand a bit better. Okay? So anyway, one of the villains of the movie, he kidnaps children, right? And uh, near the end, but you, you won't spoil the movie, but you can still watch it. He says that he's waging war against God because by kidnapping children, it's making God's people, they're Christians, right? Despair and lose faith. And as I reflected on the movie, I thought that's true, isn't it? Because there are times where bad things happen to us. Hopefully, not people kidnapping children. But bad things happen to us. And what is the, what is the, the doubt that we get in our, our hearts and our minds? That God is not in control. I'm suffering because God is not in control. That's what we're tempted to think, isn't it? Whenever bad things happen, it's because God has lost control. He's not in control anymore. But today's passage says very clearly that God is in control. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Even when David seems to be suffering various things. And he's on the run. The king is trying to kill him. He's under pressure. But yet, God is in control. See, finally, as we look at this passage, just because we struggle, just because we suffer, doesn't mean that God is not in control and God is not watching over us. If you look at David's life, I imagine, okay, just for a moment, put yourself in David's shoes. Samuel has anointed him. The Holy Spirit has empowered him. But he's still struggling, isn't it? He's still on the run. He is still being threatened with death. As we will see in the weeks to come, some of the instances in 1 Samuel relate to Psalms. And when you read the Psalms, you can see how David has a crisis, isn't it? Where is God? Why isn't God protecting me? But God is still in control. So if you are struggling, if you are suffering, or maybe one day you will, remember God is still in control. Your struggles does not mean that God is not sovereign or in control of things in your life as His people. Lastly, I think the last application is that God's sovereignty is fulfilled in Jesus. Because as we see Him taking control of all the events in David's life, we see that same power at work, taking control of all the events of Jesus' life, to bring Jesus to the cross and to make Him rise again so that we have salvation. That's the power of God, isn't it? So in Acts chapter 2, okay, look at what God does. Okay, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and for knowledge. 
And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, just as wicked men like Saul tried to stop God's anointed from being king and failed, so Jesus actually uses the acts of the wicked men by his set knowledge and purpose to actually fulfill his plan for bringing life, salvation, and forgiveness of sins into the world. He, through his set purpose and foreknowledge, put everything in place so that Jesus would be crucified by wicked men. And what is the right response? Well, the right response is, therefore, then to repent, to be baptized and to turn back to God, isn't it? Because of the power of God that is shown both in David's life and in Jesus' life. So as we come to the end of this passage, I want you to just think of the, what we said in the introduction. Sovereignty. If God is a sovereign God, if God is a God who makes his own plans and carries them out in his own time and in his own way, a God who knows everything and rules over everything, has power over everything, then why should we ever doubt God? Why should we turn away from God? Why should we rebel against God? Why should we doubt God's care of us when times are tough? Why should we abandon Jesus when he has caused all these things to happen for Jesus to come and to die and to rise again? So as we look at this passage, let us look at what God has done and the power that he used to protect and to save David. It's the same power that he exercises in the world today. And I hope that as we think more and more about the power of God, it will challenge us if we do not believe in God. It will strengthen us for those of us who are struggling as Christians and it will help us to hold on to Jesus even more. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, what a mighty, powerful God you are. You have absolute sovereignty in this world, that even King Saul, with all the power at his disposal, is unable to touch and destroy your anointed. Help us to see that it is futile and silly to fight against you and your plans, that what we need to do is to come to you and to trust in you instead. May we never be shaken in our faith when bad things happen to think that we, you are not in control over our, our lives and that we will continue to hold on to Jesus all the more as we have seen your power at work, both in David and also in his life, that you cause all the pieces to fall into place, that he would, he would come and die and rise again. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.